You can turn to Luke chapter 11. We'll be in verses 24 through 36 this morning. I recently bought a bike. I went to Walmart and bought a, a Huffy. And we went down to the Mickelson Trail. We've been telling the boys we'll get bikes forever. We go down to the Mickelson Trail, and within about five minutes, my handlebars are completely loose. They're moving back and forth like this, and I look like I've never ridden a bike in my life. And it's really embarrassing when you run into church members on the trail. So a couple of my brothers in Christ confronted me in my foolishness. And they said, you know, when it comes to mountain bikes, you actually do get what you pay for. So I took my Huffy back, and I bought a decent bike. You know, sometimes, sometimes you get what you pay for is just an excuse for us to sort of extravagantly spend on something that we don't really need. But sometimes there are some things in life that are actually worth the expense, worth paying something extra because of the return that you get. And as I think about our section this morning in the book of Luke, I think maybe we could summarize it this way. The high cost, the high cost of genuine faith and repentance is worth it since you gain the immeasurable treasure, which is Christ. The high cost of genuine faith and repentance is worth it since you gain the immeasurable treasure, which is Christ. We're right in the middle of this section where Jesus is receiving opposition and we find him responding to opposition. Remember, he has just delivered a man from the oppressive, controlling influence of a wicked spirit, an evil angel, a demon. You'll see those different uh, sorts of terms in your Bible This particular demon had rendered the man mute, and when freed by the power and authority of Jesus, the mute man began to speak. And the crowd marveled. They were amazed. But most in the crowd either attributed Jesus' work to the power of Satan, or they demanded a sign that Jesus might prove that he is who he says he is. And so Jesus undermines the, the logic or the, the illogical argument that they put forward. He undermines their attack and asserts that, that he has actually come to overthrow the work of the devil. That's what's happening when Jesus does his miraculous work. And so Jesus challenged his opponents at the end of last week's text, that that you have a choice. If you're not for me, Jesus says, you are against me. There is no middle ground. You are for Christ or against him. And our passage this morning helps us understand exactly what it means to side with Christ, what true commitment to Christ looks like. And the first thing we see, there's really four points this morning, the first of which is, uh, commitment to Christ means repentance, not neutrality. Look in verses 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. 
So in, in, in the context here in Luke, Jesus is still addressing his opponents. He does so in a series of statements. This first one is a parable, which is a, a short story designed to illustrate a particular point or make a particular point. So let's look at the story first, and then we'll consider what Jesus is trying to drive home here with his parable. An unclean spirit is evicted from a person. The spirit is restless and wanders, the text says, through, through waterless places. You know, in Jewish thinking, the, the wilderness, sort of the desert, was, was the, a, a wicked place, the abode of wicked angels. And so he finds no rest out in these waterless places, out in the desert. The demon prefers to create havoc by exercising his influence on a person. And when it can find no rest, it can find no house or abode, it decides to go back to the house from which it came. That's the man from which the demon was evicted. And when the demon returns, he finds that the house has been swept, it's been put in order, it's been cleaned up. You know, we've seen as we've walked through the book of Luke, the sort of chaos that these wicked angels cause in the lives of those whom they are afflicting. And and, and so that that chaos has been cleaned up, it's been swept up. You know, just think about the the demoniac, the garrison demoniac that we looked at, I think back in chapter 8, that he was immodest, he was unruly, he was uncontrollable. But after Jesus exercised the demon out of him. He was calm. He was sitting at the feet of Christ. He was, in that sense, a clean house. So the demon returns to a clean house. The man's life is not as chaotic. It's back in order in some sense. He's likely cleaned up his life, but he's still hollow. There's nothing in the place that prevents that evil spirit from returning. Ultimately, this, this man's attempts at sweeping up his own heart has fallen short. And so not only does the demon return, then he brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And Jesus' conclusion is the last state of this person is worse than the first. He's worse off than where he began. I think the point is this. I think the point of the parable is this. Even those who personally experience the miraculous delivering power of Jesus, like, like this man just did in last week's text, an expulsion of, of a demon, even those who personally experience the miraculous delivering power of Jesus must not then remain neutral towards Christ must not remain neutral. Commitment to Christ and repentance is a must, even for the one who has personally experienced the miraculous work of God. The danger is, for a person who who maybe was healed by Christ, or maybe like this man who had a demon cast out by Christ, the, the, the danger is to then enjoy the benefits of that miraculous work without truly turning to Christ and repenting of their sins and, and filling their house, so to speak, with Christ. You know, we see a similar example of this in Luke chapter 17, and we'll get there eventually. But I'm guessing we'll all have forgotten what I'm about to say now by then. You know, there's 10 people that have leprosy that are on the way where Jesus is going, and Jesus heals 10 of them. And only one of them returns. 
to say thank you. Only, only one of them shows that they've actually turned back and appreciated what Christ has done. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? Weren't, th- weren't there ten of you that I healed? The other nine show that though they'd received some kind of benefit from the Lord physically, their hearts were hardened and they did not glorify the Lord. And so I think Jesus is illustrating to his opponents a point that he made explicitly last week. There's no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Christ. A person either stands with him or stands without him. A a person is with Christ or against him. To try your hand at neutrality. To say, yeah, God's been sort of kind to me. I think I'm okay with the Lord. But not to truly turn to Christ is to put yourself in the dangerous position of seeing some kind of God's work but failing to respond to the message of the gospel. So it's worth us evaluating this morning. Where is your source of confidence that you have been rescued from the wrath to come? Where is your confidence that you have been rescued from the wrath to come? If your answer is, well, you know, one time I prayed and this thing sort of happened for me. Or, you know, he's done a lot of really nice things for me. I've got a nice job. I've got a nice house. I've got a nice family. Clearly, me and God are on good terms because I've experienced some of the, the benefits, some of the kindness of the Lord. You know, if we are, if that's the basis and the root of our confidence, We might be like the guy who experienced this miraculous work of God but did not truly turn to him and trust in Christ, has never truly committed himself to Christ. Our confidence in our right standing with God must flow from our belief that Christ has indeed washed away our sins through his sacrificial death on the cross. And in trusting this message, then we we begin to see evidence of a changed heart and a changed life, not just sweeping up our home, not just putting on some sense of morality, but a love for God, a love for God's Word, and a love for God's people, God's church. So don't settle for neutrality. It's a dangerous position. J.C. Rowell says, The house must not only be swept and whitewashed, a new tenant must be introduced. The man needed to be born again. The outward life must not only be garnished with the formal trappings of religion, the power, he says, of vital religion, that's life-giving religion, must be experienced in the inward man. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Ghost must take his place. We must not only be moralized, Ryle says, but spiritualized. We must receive the Holy Spirit. We must not only be reformed, but be born again. So in addressing his his opponents then, it seems like Jesus is, is actually warning them as well about this same danger. Though they have not been necessarily the recipient of this miraculous casting out of the, uh, the demon of this divine deliverance. They have seen it. They've seen the signs and wonders that Jesus produced. They had an opportunity firsthand to see the power of Christ on display, and they had a chance to repent and to return to God. But many, most in the crowd, refused. And Jesus says it would have been better for them 
to have experienced, to, to, to not have seen this in the first place. To not have seen this display of the power of the Messiah if they were just going to harden their heart and reject it. Remember, this crowd was amazed at the power of Jesus, but they failed to follow that up with genuine repentance. For many in the crowd, they became like the man who was filled with more evil in that they saw the power of God, and instead of turning to him, they attributed his work to satanic influence. They are guilty of denying Christ. These, if you, if you compare with Matthew, guilty of apostasy and will never come to the knowledge of God. The apostle Peter will later quote Jesus here when he's discussing false teachers. And he writes in 2 Peter 2.20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, what does Peter say? The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It would have been better for these false teachers if they had not heard the gospel and at least pretended to have received the gospel and then to walk away from the gospel. They're in a worse place than they were when they started. And so if if you're a Christian here this morning, there's an encouragement for us to hold fast to Christ and to the gospel which has been entrusted to His people. These false teachers, they had some, some sort of a knowledge of Christ. They'd even given up some of their worldly entanglements, Peter says. But the pull of the flesh and the siren's call of this world was too much, and they walked away from Christ. Now, the fact that that those who are truly born again are secure in Christ, right? They went out from us because they were not of us. We, we, We believe that, that if you come to Christ, you're secure in Christ. But it doesn't stop the authors of of Scripture from saying, hold fast to Christ. Do not walk away from Christ. If you walk away from Him, you trample underfoot the Son of Man and the blood of of His work, and you'll never return. Do not walk away from Christ. Persevere in your faith, or else we run the danger of imperiling our own soul. Here's the warning. If I walk away, If I walk away, I'm trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. If we want to use the language of Christ here, if if I walk away, I'm inviting more evil, more deception. I'm hardening my heart. I'm apostatizing. I'm walking away never to return. So what we need is to reject this idea of neutrality and to turn to God in repentance and to keep walking in repentance and to hold fast to Christ unwavering in your commitment to the gospel. Secondly, our commitment to Christ means obedience, not sentimentality. Look in verse 27 and 28. As he said these these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You know, as Jesus is Speaking here, in the, in the middle of this parable, a woman in the crowd interrupts. Apparently, she is 
trying to side with Jesus. She is trying to, to say, you know what, some of us here are impressed with your work and we are impressed with your teaching. And she calls out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, I don't know how you do in awkward moments, but I don't love them. And this sort of reminds me of those moments where you're teaching and somebody just makes a comment that's just totally off the wall and they think they're right and they're convinced they're right and they think they're contributing to the conversation and everybody else in the room is thinking, man, I wonder how Kyle's going to handle that. That's what's going on here. But Jesus' response is, is actually softer than we might realize at first. You know, typically in the book of Luke, if Jesus is going to totally reject someone's statement, he says something like, no, but I say to you, you're completely wrong. He doesn't use that here. And part of the reason is this lady is not completely wrong. We learned early in the Gospel of Luke that Mary is a spectacular woman. She modeled godliness when she heard that, that the Spirit of God would overcome her and that she would bear the, the Savior. She said, may it be done to me according to your word. In fact, remember when, when Mary visited Elizabeth in chapter 1, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you're like, I'm comfortable right now, are you, are you sure, Kyle? Are you sure you're not going down like some Catholic theology? I'm not. When, when Mary approaches Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, and what did the Holy Spirit inspire her to say? Blessed are you among women. Mary herself, in her prayer, said, Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So the lady is not completely wrong. Mary is blessed. She's certainly privileged to have borne Christ. She was the recipient of God's grace and mercy. She was a wonderful woman, but she's just a woman. Not as opposed to like just a woman as opposed to a man, but just a woman as opposed to, she's not some kind of deity, she's not some, some kind of super saint that we must pray to, and maybe she intercedes for us. It's, it's not that. So even though I don't think the woman uh, interrupting Jesus is actually guilty of elevating Mary to a status where she should be prayed to, venerated, worshipped. Uh, if I'm going to say she's not completely wrong, I want to be crystal clear that I'm not saying that. Mary is a woman who needed a Savior just like the rest of us. In fact, she admitted that herself. So Jesus doesn't offer a, a stinging rebuke like he does in other places. But what he does is he, he sort of shifts the focus to what he wants to emphasize and to what he wants to talk about. Real blessing, yeah, Mary was, Mary was blessed, but real blessing comes to those who hear and keep the Word of God. Jesus' response teaches us that it, it, it is a greater honor for Mary to have Christ as her Savior than it was to be His mother and to have nursed Him. Jesus' central concern is not that this lady throws out nice words about Christ, and she actually is trying to compliment Christ sort of a roundabout way, but his concern is not that this lady can throw out nice words, but on how she receives him and his message and his teaching. I think, she, I think by and large she's missing the larger point that Jesus is driving at. He's seeking faithful followers who hear 
and obey the word. Those who only hear his word, Luke has already argued, those who only hear the word and do not obey it are like someone who builds their house on sand, and when the storm comes, it topples over. Like a foolish builder. And they're toppled, I think, at the judgment. Now, so what does this what does this mean? It, it, it means that this, you know, nice words about Jesus aren't salvific if they're not accompanied by repentance and faith. We can have Bible verses, Hobby Lobby signs all over our house and still be lost if we're not characterized by obedience to those very verses that hang on our wall. Those who hear only deceive themselves. They deceive themselves. They fail to live out what they hear. And some, many, take confidence in their, in their ability to hear where they should be fearful with their lack of obedience to the Lord. Now, this is a, this is a good reminder for us as a church because we, we love theology. We prize the study of God's Word. We prize Bible knowledge and eschatology and soteriology. It's a good reminder that we're meant to obey the Word, not just hear the Word. So here's a few ways we might evaluate ourselves. Are you a hearer and a doer? Do we exercise self-control over our tongue? You know, self-control is an aspect of the of the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in his people. And there's nothing, the Bible says, like our mouths, our tongue that, that sort of demonstrates what is going on in our hearts. So if our tongue is out of control, we are out of control. So a couple questions are, are we striving to obey God in the way that we talk? Are we using words that build up? When I look at the end of Ephesians 4 and I see, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only use words that build up. I tell people, if I'm counseling people on communication, I say, if that was the only verse in the Bible, it would be enough to condemn me forever. Are we using words that build up? Are we refusing to gossip? A second test, do we care for those? Do we love those who are around us in need? We looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan a couple weeks ago. We saw that the, the, the Samaritan was a loving neighbor because he served and cared for and sacrificed for the person in his path who would have likely died without his intervention. And so a question we can ask is, is do, do I only help those who I feel like can benefit me? Or number three, do we look just like the world? Do we look just like the world? I remember having a summer job in high school. I was a new Christian. I was just, you know, like a lot of new Christians, excited. I was studying the Bible. But at the end of summer, one of my coworkers said, I must have said something about church or something, but she said, oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. And she sort of meant that like a compliment, you know, like, oh, you're not some of those, one of those weird Christians, but as a new Christian, that, that wrecked me, right? I, wanna, I want you to be able to look at me and see that you are a Christian. You, you think you're complimenting me, but the Lord just used you to convict my heart. 
You know, if you've been reading through James recently, maybe you picked up on the fact that all I'm doing in those three things, I'm just pulling from James's list. Right after he says, be a hearer and a doer, he says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is useless, worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we ask ourselves these questions, am I a hearer and a doer? You know, just one, one other application. Actually, I don't know why I said one. There's a, just follow me. This, this is one reason... Church membership matters. Because even as I say the list, do you bridle your tongue? Do you help those who are in need? Do you keep yourself unstained by the world? You see, we're not, we're not actually very good evaluators of ourselves. Some of, us are, some of us are maybe too easy on ourselves. Most of us who are, who are members of this church are probably going to have a hard time seeing ways in which you are walking in righteousness and obedience. So for those of you who only see your sin, and your sin is always before you, being a member of this church means that your elders and your brothers and sisters in Christ are affirming that they see in you the evidence of being a hearer and a doer. You are, st- you are in good standing in that sense, that we are giving our stamp of approval that, you know what, you may only see your sin, and, and maybe that's not all bad. But we see in you the work of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of salvation in your life. We may see in you what you have a hard time seeing yourself. And for those who are way too easy on themselves, God has given us a means by which we say, you know, Your life is not lining up with your profession. We're not seeing in you that you're a hearer and a doer. And if you persist in this, the evidence of your life is that you don't know Christ and that you need to come to know Him and to be truly saved. So church membership matters when it comes to evaluating your own heart and your own life as to whether you're a hearer and a doer. You know, this lady, she said some really nice things about Jesus, but she was in danger of missing the larger point that Jesus was trying to, to make. And we too should be warned of the danger of good things that can give us a false sense of security. You know, sentimentality can be confused with being a hearer and a doer. Well, we've got these family traditions and we observe Easter and Christmas. Or when I come to church, I'm really moved by, by some of the hymns that I grew up singing. Like, these aren't bad things. These are, these are good things, but they're not a replacement for hearing and doing the Word of God. So commitment to Christ means repentance, not neutrality. It means obedience, not sentimentality, and it requires faith, not some sort of false popularity. Look in verse 29. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Luke, who tends to talk about the crowds often anyways, he draws attention to the fact that the crowd is is increasing. There will come a time in Luke where the crowd is absent. Even Jesus' followers scatter and flee. But the time has not come yet. The crowd is increasing. The crowd is growing. More people are coming out to see Jesus. Maybe even ask Him to do a sign. The crowd is present. The crowd is growing. But what's missing is faith and repentance. Those are nowhere to be found. So Jesus rebukes the crowd, calling them an evil generation. This is a reference to Israel rejecting their Messiah despite the many ways that he has attested already to his person, to his mission, who he is and what he has come to do. There wasn't a lack of evidence that led them to doubt. It was darkened hearts, blinding, blinded from seeing who Christ is and what he has come to do. And one of the ways they demonstrated their blindness, one of the ways they demonstrated that that they were an evil generation was continuing to clamor for a sign. We saw it in our text even last week. Give us a sign. Over and over, the, the teaching of Jesus was rejected or they denied His miracles or tried to pin it on satanic power. Why? Well, they said they lacked evidence. But it wasn't for lack of evidence. It was an evil generation. They're asking, Jesus, just do something to prove it. Give us a sign. You know, we shouldn't today be surprised by unbelief either. Sometimes we look at at this crowd and say, he was right there. They saw it with their own eyes. Well, on our side of the cross... We have have the sign of the resurrection. We have all the evidence we need to know that Christ is who He says He is and has done what He said He would do. So I want to be careful about, you know, kind of throwing these people under the bus without evaluating our world and our lives. So Jesus tells them then that the sign that they will receive is the sign of Jonah. And what Jesus is doing is he's drawing a comparison between himself and Jonah. You know, it's really clear in verse 30. It's one of those times where you're like, well, what, what is Jesus doing here? Well, we just kind of keep reading. We get to verse 30, and Jesus says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. He's comparing himself to the ministry of Jonah. We know that Jesus is like Jonah in in a couple ways. Luke really highlights this, this first way. He has come preaching the message of repentance. Jesus has come preaching the message of repentance. We know that Jonah was sent to his arch enemies. 
the ruthless Ninevites, known for their violence and their wickedness, even their violence against God's people, so we can make fun of Jonah, but those were a hated and despised people. And he walked through the city, and he, he pronounced woe, he pronounced judgment upon them. It's coming. Really, that's the only part of Jonah's message that we have. In 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. But the people, because God was at work in their hearts, saw that, you know what, maybe if we repent here, God will relent from his wrath. And so Jonah went to the Ninevites. Jesus is saying, I've come to Israel. I've come to my own people with the message of repentance. But this generation is unlike the Ninevites. You're evil. You're evil. The Ninevites did not fail to heed the warning. But this generation has. There's another way that that Jesus is like uh, Jonah. It's that like Jonah, Jesus will be delivered supernaturally from death. Now this is made really explicit in Matthew's gospel, but I think it's implied here in Luke. The idea of the resurrection is mentioned twice. The queen of the south will be resurrected and condemn you at the judgment. The Ninevites will be resurrected and condemn you at the judgment. Also, I think the narrative of Jonah's life would have been no secret to Jesus' audience here. And so he's like Jonah in the sense that he will be um, delivered from death. You know, it's, it's tempting to think that as you read the book of Jonah, that this, this fish is, is God's punishment for Jonah running away. But as you, as you read Jonah, you realize the, the fish is God's mercy. It's God's grace. It's God's deliverance for the drowning prophet who's at the bottom and has the weeds wrapped around his head. And this fish comes and delivers Jonah safely on shore because God was kind to Jonah. As he was about to die, uh, God delivered him. But Jesus, he says, I am greater than the prophet Jonah, and he's greater, and his message is greater, and he's greater in that his deliverance from death is greater because Jesus wasn't about to die. He was put to death on that cross for our sins, and his resurrection becomes an irrefutable sign that he is the Son of God who has come to rescue sinners from the penalty of their sin. That's the sign that will be given. Yet even as the crowds grew, even as Jesus' popularity at some point increased, they would miss the preaching of repentance. They would miss what the resurrection meant. We've said before that, I don't think, it, I don't think it's accidental here that Luke, Luke highlights the crowd. This is a theme he's been highlighting. He loves to talk about the crowd. They've, they come together, and then they leave together. You know, we think about in our own country, there's been times where Jesus has been very popular and everybody in the street would know, know the name of Jesus at least and probably be able to tell you parts of the gospel. The crowds would at least have some knowledge of him. Seems like there's days on the horizon where many don't. So I wanted to Think about this idea of, of crowds for a moment, especially as it relates to some of you younger folks, you know, not to just be tossed to and fro by what the crowd is up to. 
Again, they sort of get excited together about who Jesus is and look what he can do. And then when, it's, when they all leave, they all tend to leave together. I want to encourage you not to be tossed to and fro. You know, it can be tempting, especially for those of you who are in school, to kind of look around and say, man, it just seems like nobody believes what my parents believe. Nobody believes what my parents seem to believe about the Bible. Well, first, that's not, that's not true. That's not true. But also, it, it may seem like the world is all saying the same thing. It may seem like they have sort of this unified message, but they, they've been saying this same thing for like 30 seconds. It's so recent and it's new and it's going to change again in another 30 seconds and it's going to keep changing. And so what I'm saying is you can get whiplash by trying to follow the ways of this world, by trying to follow the crowd, or you can root yourself in the historic faith. A faith that's persisted through thousands of generations and a faith that rests on the sign of Jonah. Ultimately, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rest in Him. Don't try to follow the world. Don't try to follow the crowd. Come to Christ. Root yourself in the resurrection of Christ. See, Jesus highlights then the wickedness of this generation by pointing out that the Ninevites listened to the warning of Jonah. He says these pagan, wicked people, they heard the wayward prophets But Jesus is greater than Jonah. He has come to his own people, and his own people received him not. They have rejected him. Therefore, at the judgment, these once wicked people who turned from their wicked ways, repented of their sins, even demonstrated their repentance, and they threw themselves at the mercy of God, they will rise up in judgment over this wicked generation that should have recognized their Savior, their Messiah. Someone greater than Jonah has come in Christ. Jesus uses another Old Testament example as well. The the Queen of the South, you might remember this from Bible Hour in 1 Kings 10. The Queen of Sheba had heard about the wisdom of Solomon, and she came a great distance to hear this wisdom and to confirm this wisdom and to glean from this wisdom. And Jesus is saying, one who is greater than Solomon is in your midst. Any wisdom that Solomon possessed finds its source in Jesus. His wisdom is nothing compared to the wisdom of Christ. Solomon's wisdom was a dim reflection of the wisdom that God possesses. And yet this queen, a Gentile, a pagan, heard a rumor And traveled across distant lands to hear this wisdom. And Jesus is saying, I've shown up in the flesh to my people, and they won't hear me. They won't hear me. You see, the crowd had a much greater demonstration. Here's Jesus is condemning them because they had a much greater demonstration of wisdom and a much clearer prophetic proclamation of repentance than Solomon or Jonah could ever supply. Someone greater than Jonah was there. Someone greater than Solomon was there. They had, you know, Solomon was a king who started off pretty well. Here in Jesus, they had the king of kings. Jonah was a reluctant prophet. Here they have the prophet that's greater than Moses in their very midst. They were curious, 
They gathered in crowds, but they did not repent and believe. I think it's hard for us to, to kind of grasp the stinging rebuke that would have been felt as Jesus says, Gentiles who responded to God are going to rise up in the judgment and condemn you, Israel. This is, I think, laying the groundwork for what happens in the book of Acts where the mystery of the gospel goes to the Gentiles. So the crowd wanted a sign, but in Jesus they have all the light they need to see. See, the issue is not whether they need more light or not. It's that they haven't responded to the revelation that they have been given. So we see lastly this morning, we need a humble reception, not self-deception. Look in verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. They demanded a sign, and Jesus is saying, I have hidden nothing. I have not hid this. His teaching isn't some secret code to be cracked. Remember back in the day when they had those Bible code books coming out? If you take the seventh letter of the seventh word and every seventh chapter of the, the book of the Bible, it says, you know, watch this show on Netflix. Don't drink Starbucks coffee. Aren't you glad that God hasn't hidden himself where just some guy in a basement has to tell you what to believe as he deciphers the code? He has illuminated himself. He is the light of the world, and this light shines on every man. Jesus has made himself plain. The light of the world has come. Jesus says it'd be useless to light a lamp and then stick it in the cellar or to put it under a basket. It'd be useless for Jesus to not shine through the clear teaching and through his ministry. And so Jesus is condemning the crowd. If there is no illumination, it's because you've not seen it, not because it's not there. It's because the crowd ignores the light and prefers darkness. Now, the same is true today. We have heard plainly about Christ. He is not hidden. He has testified to His own uniqueness, particularly through His resurrection. If we don't respond to the light, it's not because it's not there. It's because we prefer darkness rather than light. This light is, is the clear teaching concerning Christ. And so what determines our standing before the Lord is, is whether we receive the light or not. A healthy eye, Jesus says, receives the light, and the whole body then is full of light, while an unhealthy eye does not receive the light, cannot receive the light of revelation, and therefore the entire person remains shrouded in darkness. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. John the Baptist says, I came to testify about the light. The apostles 
preach so that you might turn from darkness to light. The church has been tasked with the proclamation of the gospel of light. The light is plain. What remains is whether we respond to the light or we reject the light. And so there's this frightening possibility in verse 35 that's particularly true of this this crowd. That the, the light in you may be darkness. Be careful. Be careful lest the light in you may be darkness. This is a a, a cryptic warning from Jesus addressing his adversaries, his opponents. Again, they've seen the revelation. They've seen Christ. They've seen his miracles. They've seen the signs. There are eyewitnesses. They've heard his teaching. Yet even though they've, they've sort of seen the light in, in one sense, they have rejected it. They've turned from it. They've accused him of being a charlatan and driven by demonic power. And so what they are so convinced of, they've actually deceived themselves. The light they possess is actually darkness as they reject who Christ is. But Jesus has come into the world. He has lived a perfect life, and he hasn't done so just as a mere example. He's done it as our representative, and he went to the cross as our representative. God coming in the flesh, Jesus Christ, allowed him to be the perfect substitute for our sins, taking the wrath of God in our place, satisfying every ounce of divine wrath against us, taken in Christ himself. And for all who receive the light of the gospel, Peter says, God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So don't be, don't be deceived this morning. Come to Christ, admit your sin, rely on him as your Savior and Lord if you've not done that. For those who understand that Jesus is is the truth, He is the revelation of God, He is the light, then their whole body is light, Jesus says in verse 36. I think the idea is we, we become little beacons of light for the glory of the gospel. We let our light so shine before men that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. The life of the one who has received Christ, the revelation of Christ, is adorned with with the light of God, the beauty of the gospel. You see, churches have not only been tasked with the proclamation of the gospel, but were tasked with being a little outpost of light in the midst of a dark world. So in light of the work of Christ, we seek to serve and love Christ and so glorify God. We do so as we love in self-sacrificial ways that testifies and, again, just sort of dimly pictures the love of Christ. This, this love that we're called to experience it's, or, or to live out, it's directed towards one another, especially of the household of faith, but it's also directed towards those who, who would be labeled even our enemies because we want to love the way Christ loves and we want to be filled with light and therefore shine the light. In light of the work of Christ, we have hope, even in the midst of chaos and persecution and hope in a broken and sinful world that even stands against you, is a testimony to the power of the gospel. 
When reviled, we don't revile in return. When attacked, we love because we have a living hope. Our hope is in our living Savior. So Peter says we seek to live honorable lives among the Gentiles. Why? So that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When we receive the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, He floods us with light and extinguishes the darkness so that we might be a lamp set on a lampstand illuminating for the lost world the way to God found only in Jesus Christ. You know, as as the crowds increased, genuine faith had not. You know, I don't know how much you pay attention to like the church world, you know, we try not to go there often, but, but it just seems like we've seen failure after failure after failure of prominent pastors here in America, prominent pastors overseas. I know this happens at a smaller level too. We just don't hear about it on the news. But what the, the commonality and sort of these mega church pastors who fall, the commonality is, well, he was such a gifted leader, it's hard to argue with the results. Look how many people came in to hear him. Look how many people came to church. So we can't hold him accountable for ungodly behavior. Now, God works at times despite these men. There's powerful testimonies of people who are saved under ungodly Men, but I want to I want to just highlight this as we close. That we what we hope to achieve at Southern Hills is not just not just a huge crowd. We want to we want to ask God that we be filled with real faith and real repentance so that we might be a community of people dedicated to Christ and dedicated to his gospel and to shining forth as a testimony of his kindness towards us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for your word that warns us, yet also encourages us. Father, may we be resting not in sentimentality, not in moralism. Lord, may we be resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that we have turned and trusted in that message, and that you have begun the process of making us like your Son. May we have true confidence in who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.